0: help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com.
1: Welcome back to the Freelance Podcast with Gregory, Gregory, and Colin. You ever go by Gregory? Like, did your mom ever call you Gregory? My mother would be
2: the only one that called me Gregory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, I guess everybody with the name Greg is short for Gregory, isn't it? I think so. Yeah.
2: What about Colin? What's the long form of Colin? Colin. Colin.
1: Yeah. Okay. This is no long form. So yeah. did people call you Call? My wife calls me Call. My yeah. mom calls me Call. Those okay. are about the only two people in this world Right. Okay. All right. My son's name is Kalen, which is yeah. a derivative of Colin. Sure. He hates his name. Does he? Yeah. I wish he didn't, but. Okay. Anyways, that's not why we're here today, Greg. No. Greg, last week, Steve took your spot. Was that Steven? Steven, yes. yes, Or as his mom calls him, Steven. Okay. And we interviewed a guy named Brian Portnoy from Shaping Wealth. Right on. A well-known person in our space. He had quite a career starting off in retail investing, equity analysis, portfolio management, and now focused on behavioral finance. There's a lot of talk about behavioral finance these days, and rightfully so, Right. And we're kind of talking a little bit about that today. That's right. right. Yep. Because the S&P 500, everybody uses as a sort of a benchmark for how the market's doing. Yep. It's not really the greatest benchmark, but it's better than the Dow Jones or the TSX or whatever. Right. It's like the 500 largest companies that trade in the U.S. make up the S&P 500. But it's only seven of those companies that have led the charge this year right?
2: Yep. exactly.
1: So so really the S&P 493, which is the S&P 500 that excludes those seven largest of the companies, is up about 4% year to date. Meanwhile, the S&P 7, which is known as the Magnificent 7, is up over 50% year to date. And one of those companies is Apple. And Apple's market cap is the same size as the entire Canadian market. Just as a little FYI. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. One stock. <laughs> One yeah. stock. The Canadian market is 3% of the world market and Apple is 3% of the world market. But the S&P 500 index, including the seven and the 493 stocks, if you just look at the whole thing, is up 13% this year, which is pretty good. It is. Right? Like the long-term average is somewhere around 8 or 9% a year yeah. mm-hmm. for the last 50, 60 years. So 13 is a good year. But in hindsight, investment managers should have bought those magnificent seven, right? Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, NVIDIA, Google, Tesla, and Meta. And really should have sold all other stocks and bonds if they wanted to have a stellar return.
2: Right. So if you're a perfect stock picker, those are the seven to pick.
1: Yeah. And of course, in hindsight, it always looks easy. Like, oh, we should have bought those seven and excluded the other 493. But I mean, everything looks obvious in the rear view mirror, right? But the reality is, if you just bought those seven, you would ignore the basic tenets of money management and really our fiduciary responsibilities to clients. Because you don't know that those seven are going to be up 50%, while well, the rest of the market's going to be up four, right?
2: Exactly. And this gets to, and, and what we're talking about today is one of our pet peeves, and that is that when you hear the old expression, it's a stock picker's market. Which implies that, oh, sometimes it's not a stock picker's market and you should just own the index. And and other times it is a stock picker's market and you should be picking stocks because that's going to make all the difference in your return. And to be honest, I mean, you could say that all the time. You can always isolate the stocks that did the very best last year in the market, regardless of which market you're looking at. And had you picked those stocks perfectly, then of course, you'd have a tremendous return compared to a market return. Well, I remember when Facebook went
1: public or meta, as it's now called, and there was a big demand to purchase the IPO shares of Facebook, like such a demand to purchase it. And of course, the first day it traded, the first trade was way higher than the IPO price. And then every trade after that was lower than the IPO price. And it went down, what did it go down? Like 30% or something? Yeah, did
2: quite a bit. Yeah.
1: And it was such a, a shock to individual investors They couldn't understand why the stock was marketed like this and it went down, right? Right. Yeah, So just an example of
2: that. No, for sure. And where we're at right now is, of course, after last year when the S&P 500 index was down, I don't know, 20% or something like that in 2022, then everyone said, well, it's a stock picker's market now because the market's down so far and you really got to be specific. And maybe they were right in that, yes, if you picked the seven right stocks, you would have been up 50%. But, in all honesty, I mean, had you just bought the index and earned thirteen percent through September of this year, I would say that's a pretty decent return in in nine months, yeah, but hindsight is twenty twenty two exactly <laughs> exactly good one <laughs> and so now, what's happening now is people are saying, well, now it's a stock picker's market because those seven aren't going to continue to outperform, they're probably going to maybe even give back some of their gains because of rising interest rates, blah, blah, blah. So now you're really going to have to be selective within the 493 stocks remaining in the S&P 500 as to which one you're going to get. So let's just start by talking about this concept of a stock picker's market. I mean, a stock picker's market implies active management. We've talked about active management, actively picking the stocks that you're going to hold in a portfolio rather than buying something like a passive index or maybe using a quantitative model that holds thousands of stocks, not a few stocks, right? Which essentially tends to mimic the indexes to a certain extent. And so a lot of this discussion, John DeGuey, he's actively writing investment articles and he focused on this concept of a stock picker's market recently. And the question is, When you look at the evidence, it doesn't really support active management all that much. And so why do some people, investors and advisors, still continue to focus on active management? Many of us, when you and I both got into this industry, the concept of stock picking was seen to be something that was a worthwhile endeavor.
1: Oh, no, I think beyond being a worthwhile endeavor, it's what we thought was expected of us.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So it was like, well, if we're not going to pick stocks, why do we need you? That was the concept. But in total, stock picking doesn't add any value in total, in aggregate, and it actually subtracts value once you include the fees and taxes. And that's just a fact. And the logic underlying that fact is pretty straightforward. The extent to which one side of a trade wins is equal to the extent to which the counterparty loses, right? And so this concept of stock trading being a zero-sum game before costs is one that was developed by a Nobel laureate, William Sharpe, who we've talked about William Sharpe on other occasions as well. Well, and people will know the Sharpe ratio. That's right. I mean, that is the same fella, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so he wrote a paper like 30 years ago entitled The Arithmetic of Active Management. And he basically showed that the average actively invested dollar has to underperform the average passively managed dollar. And that's true of all asset classes over all time horizons in all market conditions. And just to flesh that out a bit, because traders are on the opposite side of the same trade, taken together, the pair themselves is neither better nor worse off than a passive investor who simply holds the shares. And that's before you consider fees and taxes, which are consistently higher for active strategies.
1: And you refer to it as a zero-sum game, as does John DeGuy, as does William Sharp. And we got into, not trouble, but some debate a couple of years ago Because we referred to it as a negative sum game, which is when you start to factor in those fees and transaction costs.
2: Yeah. And so the concept is that trading doesn't actually create wealth. It just redistributes it. And the odds really don't change. You know, there's never a better time or a worse time to trade stocks. But, you know, despite all that, we always hear a lot about stock winners and nobody talks about the person that lost. Who's the person that sold Apple before it went up 50%? Me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> so I
1: didn't think Amazon was going to make it either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there you go.
2: <laughs> okay, maybe best if we stay away from picking stocks then. Yeah. Yeah. So as we talked earlier, I mean, the industry itself still likes to talk up stock winners. You never hear about the people that lost money on the same trade. And that's a lot of what we see on the business news. So for instance, on BNN or on CNBC, you're always going to see a focus on fund managers or investment managers or people picking the stocks or the sectors that they like going forward over the next typically short period of time. Well, actually, can
1: I go back to that Facebook example on that? Sure. Because there was such a uproar from retail investors in the U.S. It went through all levels of government, right? And everybody was so mad that the investment bankers had priced the shares so high and then they traded down. But really, the investment bankers did what they're supposed to do. They're trying to maximize the value for the company that is selling off ownership. Yep. Right? And That's so, what they're working for. Yeah, it's kind of like if you're selling your house... And you priced it at $10 million, but you knew it was only worth $5 million, and somebody gave you $10 million for it? I mean, that'd be a pretty big house, by the way. Like, sure. maybe that's not a good example. But are you going to be upset that somebody paid you $10 million for that house? Yeah. Of course not. Know. You're you know, going to be like, that was awesome.
2: That's right. Exactly. And that just kind of speaks to the various times in history when we've seen stock market bubbles. The tech wreck, or the tech boom, I should say, prior to the wreck, where people would pay... Ridiculous amounts of money to your Facebook example, but even more ridiculous because these were companies that actually had no profits yeah. and no likelihood of earning profits for years. Well,
1: even on that, like if you look at the Magnificent Seven, Meta is one of those seven. So, if those same investors had stayed invested throughout that cycle, they'd be very,
2: very happy. Yeah, very happy. Another one that I didn't think was going to make. Well, there you make go, make it, quick Sorry to, sorry to, <laughs> I, I don't want to open old wounds. <laughs> So as I said earlier, and this happens over long periods of time, industry players are always making claims that we're entering a stock picker's market as if a stock picker's market actually existed. And John Degui makes this comparison. He says, it's akin to saying we're entering a lottery number picker's market. (laughs) And the reality is the odds don't change. As I said, if the concept of, well, now we're in a stock picker's market, it's like, well, what was it before? There are always stocks that underperform and always stocks that outperform the market as a whole. So by that logic, we should always be in a stock picker's market. And then the question is, well, do the facts support that? And as he mentions, lots of times we hear that we're entering a stock picker's market, but never says when we're leaving a stock picker's market. But let's go back to talking about the evidence why it's not typically a stock picker's market.
1: Well, wait though, that's a good point you just made and he made. Why doesn't
2: anybody ever say that this is the opposite of a stock picker's market? Yeah, you never hear them say, you know what, I think for now everyone should just be invested in the index and never mind trying to pick stocks. I've never heard that. I've never heard that either. No.
1: And we've been around a lot of pretty smart people over the years. That's right. In those three decades of work.
2: Yep. No, you're right. And currently, when you look at the assets under management in active funds versus passive ones, it's about still six to one in favor of active funds, active management. And really, it seems high based on the evidence. So let's talk about the evidence a little bit. First of all, there's a couple of different sources of data on this. The first is Standard and Poor's. They do an index versus active report twice a year, and they tabulate the percentage of active funds that beat their passive benchmarks over one, three, five, and 10-year time horizons. And basically, in almost all asset classes, and jurisdictions over almost all time horizons, less than half of the active funds manage to beat their benchmarks, and the likelihood of beating the benchmark consistently goes down as time horizons are extended. Now,
1: does that include the fees that are being charged when they do that yes, work? Yes, it okay. does.
2: Now, I just happened to subscribe to another source of data on this active versus passive question. It comes from Morningstar, and Morningstar publishes again twice a year what they call their active passive barometer. So this just hit my desk recently, and it's their mid-year 2023 summary. And so their self-description, the Morningstar Active Passive Barometer, is a semi-annual report that measures the performance of active funds against passive peers in their respective Morningstar categories. The U.S. Active Passive Barometer spans nearly 8,212 unique funds that accounted for about $17 in assets, or about 56% of the U.S. fund market at the midpoint of 2023.
1: Okay, wait a minute. You said like 8,000 funds. I think there's only 3,800 stocks that trade in the U.S. every day.
2: That's right. So there's more funds well, than there stocks, are. Now, right? Now, this report actually includes global funds as well. But still, it's a very large number of funds that are trying to invest and perform their respective indexes. So this is pretty robust data, as some would like to say covers a large number of actively managed funds, and it covers a long time frame over the last, I think it goes, over 20 years. So here's some key takeaways from this particular mid-year report. And listen to this. Actively managed mutual funds and exchange-traded funds roared back to life in the first half of 2023. In fact, 57% of active strategies survived and beat their average passive counterpart over the 12 months through June 2023. So wait a second, that sounds like active management is really doing a great job. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like it. A little more than half. 57%. 57% actively beat their respective benchmarks. And by the way, that's coming off an incredibly bad year. Yeah. Okay. So.
1: Well, let's not talk about that year.
2: No, what I'm going to say though, for active managers. Okay. Because that number was up from 48% last year in 2022. Okay. Okay. Okay.
1: So it was 48% it was 48. beat the benchmark in 2022. Correct. 57% over the last 12 months. Right. So okay, a little, a
2: little less than half over in the one year period to June of 2022 and 57%. Okay. So and now they slice and dice these 8,200 funds in a lot of different ways. U.S. large blend, which means large companies, both value and growth companies, mid cap, small cap, et cetera, foreign large value, large blend, et cetera. So I'm just going to focus on a couple of these to make it understandable for people that are listening. So we're looking at large cap stocks, okay? So they call it large blend.
1: So this would be like the S&P 500 or maybe the
2: Russell 1000? Yeah, the S&P 500 would probably be or the Russell 1000. Either of those would be good. Okay, so within that particular category, 50.4% was the success rate over the last one year. So half the active managers outperformed Half underperformed. But what happens if you look at those same funds that survived for the last three years? How did they do? I think I know the answer to this. It's gonna be less. Yeah. Forty one percent. Yeah. What happens over the last five years? Where do you think it's going? Well, probably less. Twenty nine and a half percent. Yeah. And over ten years? I'm gonna guess like twenty percent. Nine point eight percent. So again, here's the point. When you hear about reports like this and say, oh, they were right, it was a stock picker's market this past year, active outperformed 50% of the time. Well, that means the other 50% of the time passive performed. So on one year, it was a wash. You could have chosen the right active, by the way, only the 50% that beat the index. If you picked the other 50%, you were under the index, so that wouldn't have been a good choice. So, so if you were able to pick the right 50%, you would have been in the same place as if you had taken the passive approach.
1: What about all those resources that go into trying to beat that market? If 50.4% beat it over the last one year, he said, all of those actively managed funds have a team of portfolio managers, exactly. analysts, yep. economists, I mean, traders. They're all working real hard That's right. to marginally beat the... Just a passive strategy of owning the
2: market for a year. For one year. Exactly.
1: And then, if that fund, as you say, it stuck around for 10 years, they were working really hard to only beat it less well, than
2: 10%. That's right. So, <laughs> and I think that's the key thing. You know, we always talk about investing is for the long run. And so, just like we talk about, well, try to avoid buying individual sectors because you have to be right twice. You have to be right when to get in and you have to be right when to get out. And the same holds true for when to choose active management. And the odds are stacked against you. In one year, let's say based on this year's results, they're even odds, but over a period of five years, you've only got about one in three chance of beating the index. And over 10 years, you've only got a one in 10 chance. So as we've always talked about, investing is just a matter of playing the odds. You can pick your stocks, absolutely, if you want. You can pick sectors, but you want to pick a strategy that gives you the best chance of being in the right place at the right time. You know what?
1: On that note, Greg, so if 10%, I'm just going to say 10%, beat the market over the 10-year period, and therefore 90% didn't, that doesn't actually explain what would have happened to a retail investor's portfolio if they were in one of those 90%ers, right? That's right. Because there's quite a range of outcomes. I mean, you could have invested in Kathy Wood's ARK
2: Innovation ETF and have lost 80% of your money. Or you could have invested in the very same ETF and got out in time and doubled your money. And there's lots of research showing how that, for the most part, staying invested, that most mutual funds actually do better than the investors in those mutual funds. Because the mutual fund, as long as it survives, it just survives and it goes on and provides whatever return that it provides. But people get frustrated or trade out of funds and end up with an even less positive outcome that they could have yeah. just by staying in. I'll just go through a little bit more of the data with U.S. large cap funds and then talk a little bit about foreign experience as well to see that this is just not a U.S. issue. Now, but the U.S. is 58% of the market. The U.S. is a large part of the market. Absolutely. So the summaries here by Morningstar the large cap equity market is actually one of the most difficult places for active funds to outperform. And so they actually underperformed the success rate of active managers in mid-cap and small cap funds.
1: That actually makes a lot of sense to me because when you're buying a large cap company and you're comparing it to the expected return of a small or mid-sized company, you expect the return to be higher in small companies because exactly. they have room to grow. Exactly. If you're buying the largest company, it doesn't always have... As much market share to capture. Yep. It's already captured it. Exactly.
2: And even though those mid and small cap managers did better relative to their passive benchmarks, their success rates were just 28% and 36%, respectively, for mid and small cap. So, and that's over what time frame? Over a 10 year time frame. 10 year. Okay. Yeah. So you still only have a one in three chance over 10 years of beating the passive benchmark. So it's all relative. You know, yes, they did relatively better than the 10% of large cap managers, but still not great. But let's talk about numbers, how much they beat. So over the decade through 2023, the large cap growth funds that we talked about, on average, the passive large cap growth funds, meaning the passive or index-like, they beat their active peers by 2.7 percentage points annualized. So 2.7% annualized over over 10 years. That's a massive compounded difference over that 10-year time frame. And then here's an interesting point that gets to the point you were making about all the resources that go into being an active manager. This is just one final point on their overall results. It says the median 10-year excess return for surviving active funds was negative across all three U.S. large-cap categories, meaning large-cap value, growth, and blend. And the distributions of excess returns for the blended and value categories had a negative skew, indicating that the penalty for poor manager selection tended to be greater than the reward for picking a winner. So if you know, you're out there, you're trying to pick the best managers and you pick the wrong one, it can really damage you. Yeah, but the
1: probability is not in your favor. If
2: 90% of large cap managers underperform
1: and you're going to have a negative performance based on picking the wrong manager, how do you find the 10% that outperform? That's right, for, exactly
2: I mean? right. And then this is the point that I was trying to get to earlier with regards to the resources. The cheapest active funds succeeded more often than the priciest ones. What a surprise, you know, you've got to chew through extra expense ratios. So over the 10 years through June, 2023, about 31% of active funds in the cheapest quintile, meaning the cheapest 20% breaking up the market into five, the cheapest quintile beat their average passive peer compared to just 19% of those in the priciest quintile. So That's kind of a logical one. And that gets to the whole basis of Sharpe's thesis that the arithmetic doesn't work very well in favor of active managers. Because the pricier you are, the less likely you are to outperform. Mm -hmm. And I just want to finish off with one comment on foreign stock investments. And they point out that global and foreign stock categories have been kinder to active managers than US market segments. The foreign stock's 10-year active success rate is 29.3%. So what? You know, so 29.3. <laughs> so we still only have a 30% chance yeah. of your active manager outperforming the passive benchmark uh, investing in foreign markets.
1: So why don't we sum it up here for our listeners? Are we saying that you should
2: be out actively picking stocks? No, we're not. And why is that? Because the arithmetic doesn't add up. There's absolutely no evidence logically, meaning before the fact There's no reason why actively picking stocks should outperform based on their arithmetic of active management. And based on the facts, the evidence, and the data that comes from these surveys done twice a year by S&P and by Morningstar, there's no evidence to suggest that it does work. There's another point that I think we
1: were going to talk about, but passed right by it, was the whole reconstitution
2: effect too, Right. right? Yeah.
1: So- I don't know if we want to spend any time on that today. That's
2: probably a, another. Well, episode. We can t- we can talk about that when we talk about index fund investing and things like that. And yeah. and by the way, I don't think we're saying that all. Means of active stock picking works against you. For example, we know that there are many strategies, many quantitative strategies that focus on factors of return. So rather than picking stocks based on fundamentals or some expectation that this is going to be a really great sector to be in or this is going to be a really great stock to be in, but there are factors of return that we've talked about many times, like low. Relative price, low price to book value relative to other stocks, size of the company, small versus large, et cetera. So, profitability. That's right. You know, so there are ways to use some form of active management to improve your odds, but it's not by picking individual stocks. No, that's a good point because we
1: do invest our pools into quantitative analysis based investing strategies, right? Mm -hmm. Because we believe that those factors do work. That's right. The thing that we don't think works, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the thing that I know doesn't work is hiring somebody to invest based off of their hunches.
2: Exactly. That's all we're saying. Yeah. So there it is. Some facts, some data, and maybe we won't have to talk about stock picking for another Couple dozen episodes. Yeah,
1: right. It always comes up. It always comes up. I had the most frustrating conversation this summer with two neighbors, and they were talking about their portfolios. And one of them said, Well, you know, it's a good thing I had those energy stocks in my portfolio that I've kept all those years because I used to work for an energy company because the rest of my portfolio didn't have any return this last year. And without those energy stocks, I would have had a negative return. Yeah. Two years ago, it was the opposite. That's right. Right? So it's just another version of stock picking. It's just another version of market
2: timing or data mining. And as you and I have talked about before on this podcast... 90% of all investment questions we receive, maybe closer to 100%, are market timing questions. Whether it's, is this the right time to be buying bank stocks? Is this the right time to be buying a specific bank stock? Should we be selling now and waiting to see what happens with interest rates? They're all market timing questions, and they all tie back to the same concept that somehow people are able to see the future, make predictions, and invest accordingly.
1: Let's go back to our, the beginning of our episode where we said, how come nobody ever says this is not a stock picking time? Yeah. Let's just say we believe this is not a stock picking time.
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. And we'll probably always say that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. I guess that's it for today. Yep, that eh? Wraps it up. Okay. Till next time. You bet. Thank you for listening to the free lunch podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminsky are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy.